I'd like to begin uh, by telling you about one of, uh, I don't know if it's my favorite movies, but a movie that I really liked uh, growing up. Uh, this movie uh, was put out in 1992. Uh, it's called The Player, and uh, it is about a movie executive. Uh, it's directed by Robert Altman. Tim Robbins is the, is the main character. It's one of those movies uh, that is about movies. That's kind of why I liked it, because I was into movies at the time, and if you're a movie buff, you know this, this movie for one main reason, and that is that the opening sequence of this movie uh, became sort of famous, became well-known, uh, because it was uh, one of those things that was one long extended shot. Now, uh, in our day, we have whole movies that are one whole shot. Like 1917 was, seems like it was just one continuous shot. Back then, uh, that wasn't done very often. And this was done with no special effects. It was seven and a half minutes long, and it took place uh, in a, like a movie a studio lot. And to make this uh, shot happen, uh, they had to repave the lot so that all the transitions would work, and it tracks characters that are walking along the sidewalk and then goes into rooms and back up high again on all sorts of mechanisms. It's really a fantastic sequence. The thing that I like about it the best is that as you are watching this opening sequence, you begin to realize that it's not just about the characters. It's not just about the story. Uh, it's actually about movie making. Uh, in fact, the whole thing begins with the, the marker, you know, the thing that goes like that, that, and it starts. They begin by showing you sort of the beginning of the movie. And as, when I was young, I just was fascinated by this, that you were kind of getting like a step back and seeing the big process at work. Uh, these days, what I didn't know at the time, we would call this like a meta kind of way of looking. Meta fiction, uh, meta, it's like over and above. It's, it's referencing itself as you are watching it. Uh, so the creator doesn't just want you to be drawn into the story. He or she wants you to think about the way that the story is being told. I mention that because uh, as I was studying and reading our text, uh, I feel like one of the, the best ways that we can understand it is to see that there is a meta framework at work here. And here's, here's what I mean. Uh, this is a message from Hosea, okay, we're in the book of Hosea, to the people of God about their sin. What we're going to see in the in this passage is that the people are not interested in hearing the message. And what struck me is that the same thing happens to us as we read the Bible. In fact, us reading, me preaching this message, the same dynamic is going to be at work. That this isn't just about the message against sin, which it is. It's also about the fact that we, we resist these kinds of messages just like the people did back then. So, there is a message from God this morning about the consequences of sin, but there is a meta-message about the fact that we, we in our hard-hardness, we, we don't really want to hear it, just like the people back then didn't, didn't really want to hear it. So here is, here is the big picture idea. I'll state it this way. Uh, there is a warning from God about sin that we need to hear, but we don't want to hear it. And we have to just be honest that, that when we read through the word of God, when we hear that, you know, certain uh, things are pushing into certain areas of our lives, even if we've been Christian for a long time, there's a part of us that resists that. And because of that, the only way forward uh, is for me to pray again and to pray that the spirit of God would help us, would, would open our minds and our hearts to actually hear what God is saying. Because if it's just up to us, if it's just up to my words, uh, then this is just going to be flat. There's not going to be anything dynamic or powerful that actually happens because we have too much built-up resistance. So let's pause again for prayer and then, and then we'll go forward. 
Lord Jesus, I do want to just come to you and acknowledge the fact that, that our sinful hearts are very hard and that our, our minds uh, are resistant uh, to the things that you have to say. In particular, Lord, when you were speaking about our sin, when you were pointing out those areas where we are out of step with what you say is best, uh, Lord, there's all sorts of reasons why we would, we would block our ears and block our minds to hear that kind of thing or simply just be distracted. I pray against all of those things. I pray instead, Holy Spirit, that you would bring a sense of, of calm and focus and Lord, that you would overcome those obstacles in our minds and heart. And then in spite of my own sin, that you would, you would use these words, your word, to shape and build and convict uh, your people according to your will. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So first, a bit of context. We know there's gonna be a word from the Lord, but let's, let's look at the context of the scene. Uh, it's feast time in Israel. Uh, God had instituted a number of annual feasts uh, for his people to celebrate. So there's obviously Passover, Yom Kippur, Purim. Uh, this feast is, is most likely the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths was uh, a week-long sort of celebration, and it was kind of specific. Uh, God had told his people that once a year, they were to travel to Jerusalem, and they were to live in tents for a week. It's like a big camp out. And the reason they did that was because it was a way to remember uh, the time when they had left Egypt. Remember, God saved them from Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness and they lived in tents all the time. And God provided for them in a miraculous way. So for the Feast of Booths, it was uh, right after harvest time and it was a way to remember, God, you're providing for us and uh, remember the time back then when God had really provided in, in an astounding, miraculous way. The problem though with this point in history, is that the, the Feast of Booths had become uh, corrupt, it become kind of empty. And I want to show you how God initially set it out in Leviticus and then what it had become. So here's Leviticus 23. Uh, this is, these are God's instructions. Here's how to celebrate. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths uh, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths uh, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So pretty clear. This is all about who I am. I'm the Lord. I'm the provider. And so go and do it at this time in this way. But here's what we find in 1 Kings. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you know that they divided so they became a kingdom in the south, Judah, and then Israel still in the north. And in the north, uh, there's an evil king, the first king, King Jeroboam, and he decided to change a whole bunch of things. And so he decided to, let's, he said, let's still have a festival, but I got some ideas. So here's 1 Kings 12. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests in the high places that he has made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. So different month, different place, no booths. No one's living in, in booths. Um, they have priests from the pagan temples coming in. They have calves that they created, idols that they're worshiping. They're uh, set up on a threshing floor, we're going to see. They're not, they're not in Jerusalem at all because they're separated. Uh, and frankly, this is symbolic of everything that was wrong in Israel. Instead of a God-glorifying celebration for seven days, it's a week of sinful indulgence, of idolatry, of corrupt worship. So 
God decides to send Hosea in to break up the party. So just imagine everyone sitting around, right, eating their kebabs, having their wine, they're drinking, they're having a great time. It's a festival, it's a feast. And Hosea comes in. You can imagine people who see him from far off. Oh man, it's Hosea. What? That guy is such a downer. He's always just telling us we're doing stuff wrong. Let's see what he has to say. So Hosea rolls up and here are the first words out of his mouth. Rejoice not, O Israel. Okay, great way to start. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So he's not happy, obviously. You can just imagine people being like, again, again with the judgment, Hosea. But notice what he's saying. He's being accurate. His words are strong. We've seen some of this language before, but his words, they're accurate. Um, This idea of loving the prostitute's wages, that's... What they're doing in their worship is they're seeking to please Baal so that Baal will bless them. So the worship, rather than being thanksgiving to God, it's transactional and sinful, just like when you visit a prostitute. You're trying to get something in return. That's the the entire faith has been corrupted this way. And next comes the warning. Okay, that was just the first shot across the bow. Now there is a warning from God about the consequences of sin. And so the next four verses is Hosea reminding the people, telling them, helping them to understand, look, this this is not a time to celebrate. This is serious. And so we're going to look at this. This, I'm going to group them into two, sort of two aspects of this warning. The consequences of sin, uh, Hosea says, are severe. That's the first thing we see. And I'll read verses uh, two to six. He says this, threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them. And the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim, that's Israel, shall return to Egypt. And they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord." What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. Now I know there's a lot of references there that are tough for us to understand, but basically what is being described are some very, very severe consequences, all tied to the sin of the people. He's describing realities that are just devastating for them at the time, but as we're going to see, it's not just for them. The underlying realities of what happens in sin is also true for us to this day. So let me just point out a few of the, how, how horrible this is, what he's describing. Verse 3 says, They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So this is a reference to the fact that there is an Assyrian army that is just waiting to come in and conquer Israel. We've we've talked about this before. Hosea has mentioned this before. This is, in fact, the discipline and and punishment of the Lord that is coming for his people because of their sin. Other prophets keep telling the people, if you keep living this way, turning your backs on God, living for other uh, idols, worshiping false gods, then there will be a consequence. And, And this consequence is exile. That's what's going to happen. Assyria is going to come in, take over all of their cities and take them off into into exile. That's what it says. They're not going to remain in the land of the Lord. They're going to eat unclean food in Assyria. This this actually happened. Now, exile is something that 
frankly for us, uh, for most of us, I would say, is, is fairly unfamiliar. Uh, we, we have homes. We probably lived in this region um, for any length of time, even though we've moved within it. Uh, that's not the same as, as being in exile. An exile means that you, you don't really have any home to go back to. There are many people in our community that are in exile, in a sense, refugees. Uh, all of the Ukrainians that have come here are, are exiled from their homeland. It's not safe there. Obviously, we know what's going on there, but we probably don't stop and think very often of what that would actually feel like. Like just to, to not have access to your homeland, to not have the stability, the security, to, to be removed and to be unable to go back. Think of, think of that psychologically, emotionally, the, the, what that would do within you. God is saying to his people, that, that is what's gonna happen to you. Literally, for those people, they will be taken off into Assyria. For us, the exile is, is spiritual. We, we probably are not gonna be overtaken by any, any nation, at least anytime soon. But the exile of God is one that has always been connected to sin. If you think about Adam and Eve, right? What happened to them? When they, when they sinned against God, they were then removed from the garden. No longer access to the God who created them, to their homeland, to the place of protection. They're out into the world that is racked by sin. This, this is our reality. That we are disconnected from the one who made us. But there's another part here that's actually a little, a little confusing. The middle line there says, Ephraim, so Israel, shall return to Egypt, which seems a bit strange because it said they were going to Assyria. Like, which, which one is it? Well, the Assyria is literal. They're going to go to Assyria. But the Egypt is, is a metaphor. To return to Egypt means to return to a state of, of slavery. Because God's people were in slavery in Egypt for, for many, many generations and were set free from the Exodus story. So what, what Hosea is saying here is reminding the people, look, this sin that is a part of your life, the consequences are dire. You're about to be taken over, sent into exile, but not only that, you're going to be slaves there. And for us, the, the consequences are just as dire because we also will be in slavery to sin. That's what the Bible talks about. When we give ourselves over to it, sin becomes our master. The idea of, of, of freedom apart from God is, is a myth. And we see this in the world around us. We see this in our own lives. That when we are free to do what we want, we, we we tend to, to follow our own uh, leanings and devices into, into wicked places, into places that are far from God. So right away, we see some severe consequences, but there are more. Look at verse four. He says, this is in, in exile. He's picturing it. There, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. So he's describing the breakdown of the sacrificial system. Back then, the way that they had peace with God was through the sacrificial system. It wasn't ultimate. It was temporary. Okay? It just pointed forward to Jesus and the cross when he would actually you know, bring peace between us and God because of our sin. But back then, they would, they would bring things. They would bring wine and pour it out as an offering to God or bread or animals. And all of that, when they left the temple, they had a sense of cleanness, spiritual cleanness. They could... Breathe. Their shame was gone. Their guilt was gone. It was a way for them to deal with, with sin. And what Hosea is pointing out is when you're in exile, you can't do any of that anymore. You, you are going to be constantly plagued with the sense of, of uncleanness and defilement and sin. 
It says there, you might have bread, but that bread is only going to fill your stomach. It'll never fill your soul. And that, that picture is one that should have been greatly troubling for the people of God. And it should be troubling for us as well. I mean, I know that, you know, the idea of the sacrificial system is, is unfamiliar, but this sense of uncleanness, sense of guilt, sense of shame, th these are things that we see all around us, that we experience, and, and that the powers of this world are, are powerless to really deal with, which is why it, it manifests in so many ways, anxiety, depression, guilt, human beings struggle with this. God, God's saying that in our sin, there's, there's no way to deal with it on our own. There's one other grievous consequence, the, the most grievous consequence, and that is death. Look at verse six. For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them. So the, the picture there is that there will be people when destruction comes, like when the Assyrian army's coming in, there's people, I guess the smart ones, they're gonna be like, we should get out of here. We should run. Where do God's people always run when they're in trouble? They run down to Egypt. Right? There's not a lot of places actually to go in that area. There's desert and there's Egypt. So they go to Egypt and they think, oh, we're going to be free. We're, we're going to escape the destruction of the Assyrians coming in. But what Hosea is reminding them is even in Egypt, you are going to be buried. Saying death is coming. Because of your sin, death is coming. Memphis, everyone would have known. Memphis was famous for two things. Uh, pyramids. This was like the capital of lower Egypt at the time. Pyramids. Same thing as today, but also a huge cemetery. When people said Memphis at the time, they, they thought death. And so Hosea is, is telling them something that we know to be true from the beginning of the word to the end. What God makes very, very clear is that sin equals death. Not just momentary death, but eternal death. Eternal destruction. As a consequence for the fact that we have abandoned our God, forsaken our God. The wages of sin is death. There's one other aspect to the severity of this consequence, though, and that is that the consequences for sin aren't just severe, they are certain. They are certain. Look at verse 9. We'll jump down to verse 9. It says of the people, they have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah, he, that's God, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. These last two lines speak to the certainty of God's justice. Now, the thing about justice uh, is that it, it's not always certain in this world. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard, I heard on the radio, uh, that they caught uh, the most wanted mob boss in Italy. Did you hear that? Uh, Matteo Messina De Nero. Uh, he had been on the run for 30 years in Italy. They were not able to find him. He was obviously being hidden. Uh, he was wanted for multiple murders, atrocious murders, murders of children. And they finally caught him. And they caught him because uh, he, was, he had a fake identity uh, because he needed chemotherapy. And so he was going for chemotherapy and someone put two and two together and they, they arrested him. He confessed, I'm, I'm the man you're looking for. Uh, he'd been on the run for 30 years. Just think for a moment, how worried would you be if you're in the mob, if they're looking for the most wanted guy for 30 years and they can't find him? Probably you would have somewhat of a, a dubious understanding of the justice system in Italy, but not just Italy. All over the world, we know that there are criminals, criminal activity, there are people doing horrible things, and yet justice is not served because either they can't be caught, they can't be found, there's holes in the justice system. And so we th criminals think, you know, what, what is the big deal? 
And the problem for us as human beings is that we often think the same thing about God. We, we, we might know that there's some sense of sin or that God is displeased or might have heard about God's judgment, but when we look around, it doesn't seem like anyone is doing that much when it comes to the sin of the world. And so we can have the impression, even within the church, look, it's not, it's not really that big a deal. Whatever the consequences are, I'm, I'm not too worried about it because of the delay, because of the... But here, here we see what God is making very, very clear. He's saying, I will remember their iniquity. I'm not going to forget any of the sins. And I will punish each one. This should strike terror into our hearts. Because what God is saying is that justice will be served the world over. That's a good thing, but that also means in our lives. That the sins that no one knows about, that the sins that we've forgotten about, God has not forgotten about them. When you consider this, this word of warning, all of these things, the severity, the certainty, you can understand why God sent Hosea to break up the party. Because God's people were, were actively, wantonly in sin and yet they were celebrating. They, they were having a great time. They thought everything was fantastic, right? And, and yet all of these things were true in their lives. The consequences were just waiting to happen. They were on the horizon. And so God sends Hosea in to tell everyone, hey, look, it's not a time to party. It's a time to grieve. It's a time to mourn. It's a time to sound the alarm. But the people did not see it that way at all. So here's the part where the people ignore the warning that they really need to hear. And we find this in uh, verses 7 and 8 that we skipped over. Uh, I highlighted in bold what seems to be the words of the people themselves. Okay, the other words are Hosea's words, but those words are their response. So, verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. And the people respond, the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity and great hatred, the prophet, says God, is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. So you can see what the people respond. You can imagine them there, right, over their shoulders, saying to each other, this guy's nuts, right? Settle down, Hosea. What is the big deal, right? They, they probably stood up. I don't, do you see anyone on the horizon? Do you see any army? We got time, Right? They had paid off the Assyrians. They're fine. We're, we're going to be okay. You overreact so much. They, they aren't interested. They don't want to hear it. They say the same thing to Hosea that pretty much all of God's people said to his prophets over and over and over again. Look at Jeremiah. Here's uh, what Jeremiah reports. Some people are saying to him. Jeremiah 20 verse 10. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps they say he will be deceived and we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. This is the way that human beings in their sin respond to God's prophets. And it wasn't just true back then. This, this attitude of heart, this resistance, this opposition is, is still true to this day. We resist the messengers of God. We resist the word of God. We resist the spirit of God. So why is that? Why is it with, I mean, we can look back on their situation with such clarity. I mean, first thing, we know it's going to happen. But it's God's prophet. God's prophets, what they say, they always come true. So why is it, why is it the people were so reluctant to hear these words of warning? How could they so easily dismiss Hosea 
There's three reasons for this. And we're going to see that these are true, not just for them, but also for us. So that's how I phrased it. So why, why are they reluctant to hear these words of warning? Uh, and why are we? Number one, because we are too focused on the present. That was the problem for them, right? In the moment, everything seemed great. I mean, they had the week off work. It was party time, right? Why would we not celebrate? It doesn't seem like there's anything happening in the moment. Why would I be too concerned about, about the future? And this is us as well. We can very easily get caught up in all the good things that are happening right now. And we can turn a deaf ear to any, anyone or any word from the Bible that might say there might be problems in the future. The future is there. It's, we love to live in the present. And so when we do that, we, we close our ears to the warnings of God. Because the warnings and the consequences, they're coming in the future. A long way off. Right? I've heard people say, I got time to get right with God. We like to, we like to be in the present. Second thing, though, the problem, we tend to have selective memories about the past. So if you think about this idea of these people returning to Egypt, this isn't the first time that Hosea has said these words. He said it also in chapter 8. You would think that if, if you were part of a people that had been enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt, if a prophet of God came and said, you're going to return to Egypt, you'd think like a, a bell would go off. What, what? What's going to happen? Like our forefathers? We're going to be enslaved like that. You would think that they would respond with a real sense of urgency, a real sense of, I, I don't want that to happen, but that's not how they respond. Why is that? Why is it that they can hear that they're going to be going back to Egypt and not be too concerned about it? Well, I think it's because they have a very selective memory. And I say that because uh, there's another point in, in Israel's history where the people were thinking of Egypt and also weren't too worried about it. Take a look at this. This is like right after they were saved, right after the Exodus. They're wandering in the wilderness. God's providing for them. They've seen miracle after miracle. There's food falling from the sky, manna. But they aren't satisfied because it's kind of bland. So look at this, Numbers 11. The people say, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Think, think of the state of mind and heart. These are people who were enslaved, like beaten, whipped. And they're thinking about that time. And all they can think about are the melons. That says something about human nature, doesn't it? That we can very often look back and totally block out certain parts of our experience. That, that, that's what was going on then. I think that's something similar in our passage today. That people hear that, going back to, to Egypt, and they don't, don't even bat an eye. Because they aren't really aware of what that means. And I think the same thing happens for us. There are many of us who have experienced God's deliverance when it comes to bondage to certain patterns of life, certain sins, certain spiritual bondage. And even though we've experienced that freedom, we still find ourselves leaning back into that pattern of sin. Because when we think about it, we don't, we don't think of it fully. We think of the sweetness of that sin. We think of the pleasure of it. And so we, we crack open the door a little bit. We let it back into our life a little bit. We, we aren't remembering all of the oppression, all, all of the hardship, all of the despair, all of the the true fullness of what it means to be in slavery. Just like the people, they forgot all the hard things. And when that happens, we, we close our ears to the warnings. 
because we, we just don't see the urgency of it. We've, we've willfully blinded ourselves to the reality of what it would actually mean to get caught back up in that sin. And so we're, we're deaf to the warnings of God. Look at this verse. Here's 2 Peter 2 verse 20. And this is Peter speaking about this dynamic of people who fall back into their sin. Uh, he says this, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. He's saying if they go back to get caught back up in this sin, it's actually worse for them. Why? Well, first and foremost, because how dishonoring is it? How disrespectful is it for us who've been saved by Jesus to, to turn our backs on him again and go back to the sin that he just saved us from? But also think of the, the, the hardness of heart that it would take for us to have experienced all of that liberation and then go back to it. That, that should make us greatly concerned. Of what, of what it is within us that would contemplate that yet again. The third reason, though, that we would ignore, dismiss the warnings of God is that we have deeply corrupted minds. Look at verse nine again. It says right there, these people, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. So the days of Gibeah is a reference to an, an atrocious event that happened at that time in Israel. There was a woman who was raped repeatedly, murdered, cut into pieces, and sent around Israel. And people were shocked, understandably shocked at the time. What they said is, I can't believe that this is happening in Israel. But the reason that it was happening was because it was a culture that was giving itself over more and more to sin. And when that happens, more and more sin is, is an option. It, it gets worse and worse. This happens in our lives as well. That the more that we give ourselves over to sin, the more corrupt, the more twisted, the more depraved we become. And so when we hear warnings about sin in that state, we, we aren't interested. Because when we're up to our eyeballs in sin, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. The warnings seem foolish. We seem fine. Because our whole moral equilibrium has been twisted. So again, here's our, big, here's our big word for this morning. There is a warning from God about sin that we need to hear, but we don't want to hear it. And there may be lots of reasons for it. Reasons that we see here, reasons of just having our, constant, our conscience seared, like we just are tired of hearing about these words from God that push back on us. It could be that we feel defeated in all of this. We've tried. We've tried to, to get out from under our sin. We've been praying about it. We've been doing everything and we just can't, it just doesn't stop. We feel defeated. We feel hopeless. And that really is where this leads us, to a question of hope. Because for these people, it, it really did seem hopeless. I mean, they weren't even listening to what God was saying. Or if some of them had, they, they had just forgotten. The, the question for us needs to be, where, where is the hope? What hope can there be if this is the severity and the certainty of God's judgment against sin? Well, to answer that question, I'd like to tell you uh, about what I did on Friday. Uh, Friday, uh, Don and I went to visit uh, my old neighbor. Uh, my old neighbor's name is Nancy, uh, Nancy Jones. Some of you might, uh, might know her. Uh, Nancy is in hospital uh, because Nancy has cancer and she is dying. Uh, when we went to visit her, uh, I mean, she's, she's very, very near death. A any day now, 
she will pass. And so visiting uh, Nancy was uh, an emotional time for me uh, because Nancy is the one who drove me to church uh, when I first became a Christian. Her son Keith is the one who invited me to youth group for the first time. It's through that family that really I, I came to know the Lord. And so in coming to see her, there was a mix because she was in such a state that she was barely conscious, uh, hadn't eaten or drunken for days, wasn't able to, to move, really wasn't able to talk. And yet when I went there and I spoke with her, she, she moved, she responded. And I was able to, to share with her some things that were deep on my heart, just of thankfulness, of, of all that she had done, all that God had done through her. But, but here's the thing I, I thought of in, in light of our text. Where Nancy was, like that condition is the most hopeless of human conditions. She's, she's moments away from death. She's unable to move. Her, her body's racked with cancer. All of the things that we see here in our passage, in, in terms of the hopelessness, the weakness, the helplessness of the human condition, she's experiencing them. And yet, and yet it wasn't a hopeless time as Don and I were there. It, it was a time that yes, was filled with sadness, but also an immense sweetness, an immense hopefulness. Because as I spoke with Nancy and as I was able to share with her, I recognized that, that the hope that I have for my life was rooted in, in the way that she lived, in her faith. And, and in the days, hours, whatever to come, when, when she finally died, all of the things that we see here in our passage, they would not be true for her. It would actually be the opposite. There wouldn't be, there's no exile in Nancy's future. She's going home, right? There's no slavery in her future. She's, she's gonna be free, fully free from all of the effects of sin in this world and on her body. She is, she is going to experience death, but only death for a moment. And then she will have life for all of eternity. All, all of the things that Hosea is warning these people about and warning us about, Nancy has hope in because of Christ, because that's what all of this leads to. At the time, the people of God, they, they, it wasn't clear. If they had the temple, they knew somehow they needed their sins to be atoned for. But in, in the light of the New Testament and the cross of Christ, we know that all of these things are not the end. And that we, by the grace and the power of God, can be saved from these things. And that in Jesus, we have hope in all of these things. And so when the warnings come, about the consequence of sin for us, it doesn't lead us to a place of hopelessness and despair, but rather it leads us onto our knees where we can confess these things and trust that Christ himself will lift us up. So let me show you this in the New Testament. This is in uh, the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is uh, a book all about the, the joys and the truths of, of being God's children. And 1 Peter 1 describes the, the riches that we have in Christ. It begins in verse three. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The part that I thought connected well with our text that gives us the answer we need is where it says, in this you rejoice. So if you think about it from the people's point of view, think about their idea of God. They're having a party. A party that in some way is celebrating God. Why would God not be happy? Why, why is God such a killjoy? Why, why does the party have to stop God? Why can't we just enjoy all of the blessings here and worry about the future later? Many of us have the same, same sense with God. God, why, why do you always have to ruin the fun? Why is it that you're bringing these harsh words of judgment? Why are you ruining the party, the things that I celebrate in this life? And yet what we see to be true is that the reason God is killing that party is because it's not a true party. It's not truly satisfying. The celebration is short-lived and corrupt and will leave us empty. But here we see that there is actually a celebration to come and that we actually have reason for genuine joy, true joy, a joy that satisfies us now and forever in Christ. So God does not want for us to cease rejoicing. He, he simply wants for us to have a genuine joy, a joy that will last, a joy that will satisfy us completely. So as we close, I'm going to pray for us because there are some of us, there are some of us that need to stop rejoicing right now. There are some of us for whom life is filled with reasons for joy, but they're all temporary, they're all hollow. And in the end, we are still under the consequences of sin. And all of us, all of us need to actually hear what God is saying. That his warnings come from a place of love. That his warnings come from a place of, of wanting us to actually see where, where this is going and to recognize that the, the only hope is in the grace and the power of the cross of Jesus. So I'll pray for that. I'll pray that we would recognize that and that we would recognize that our community is filled with people who, who are rejoicing for the wrong reasons and that have no hope because they don't know the Lord. And yet God has placed us here so that we can, we can make connections, we can make friends, we can, we can live our lives in such a way just like Nancy did where our neighbors and our coworkers will have the opportunity to know Christ in a saving way. Let me pray. Lord God, we confess that it's very easy for us to, to tune out uh, the words of warning that you've placed in scripture. It's very easy for us, Lord, especially in light of our lives, in light of the circumstantial blessings we have to, to think that everything is going okay or to perhaps feel so defeated with what's going on in our life that, that we just don't feel like there's any hope at all. And yet, Time and time again, you remind us through your word and through your spirit that there, there is always hope in Christ. There is always hope in the cross. And so I pray for us. I pray that we would be convicted. We would feel the weight of conviction about the warnings that come from sin, that we would see that there is no escape apart from you, but also that we would see that your love for us is filled with grace, filled with mercy. And that what you want for us the most is to rejoice, is to celebrate, but to do it because of the right reasons. And so I pray, I pray, Lord, for each person here that is feeling weighted down, please lift us up in you. Bring us to our knees where we need to confess. But I also pray that you would help us to see the people around us as you do. 
many, many people who are satisfied with things that will disappoint them, who are rejoicing with things that will ultimately leave them empty. And uh, you've placed us there so that we can love them well. And so Lord, guide us in that way. Help us to genuinely care for them, not just for the moment, but for, but for a relationship that will last. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you would move and do a work in us that will bring good to us and glory to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.